Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. Today's topic is character and virtue and how good we are as people. And it turns out that we might not be as good as we think we are, but how much worse are we than we think we are? Well, we're going to get into this today. My guest is Christian Miller. Christian is a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University and the author of a couple of books. Or how many books is it now? On the topic of character, it's three books. Three books on the topic of character. I know you had one other one. And your latest is The Character Gap at Oxford University Press. First, Christian, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Likewise, I wanted to ask you, why are you so interested in the subject of character? Or, or how is it, rather, that you got into it? Well, it wasn't something I was working on initially. So I went to graduate school in philosophy at Notre Dame, graduated in 2004, having written a dissertation on the topic of metaethics, or in philosophy, the foundations of morality. Where does morality come from? Is it objective, relative, or something else? And I worked on that topic primarily uh, for the next few years after I was out of graduate school. So when I was an assistant professor of philosophy at Wake Forest, that was my main uh, focus, trying to get my, my uh, chapters, my dissertation published and continuing to work on that, on that topic. But after a while, I just got burned out. Uh, I said what I wanted to say. I kind of thought the literature was getting a little stale and I was looking for something new to do. And I got really intrigued by a debate that was happening in the philosophy literature at the turn of the century about character, but not your kind of traditional debate. It was an empirically informed debate about whether character traits even exist in the first place. So you're thinking about, you're thinking about like uh, John Doris's book, The Abs Absence of Character? Right. So th there were two people who spearheaded this uh, new discussion. John Doris at the time was a professor at, at Washington University in St. Louis. He wrote a book called Lack of Character, which came out in 2002. And Gilbert Harmon, who turned out was my undergraduate thesis advisor, and who wrote a series of papers that were basically uh, calling into question whether character exists. And so this is, this is a bold idea. It was also a new spin on issues because it was drawing heavily on empirical research from psychology. And so I just got hooked and, and I wanted to see for myself, what did the psychological evidence really say about whether character exists or not? And if character does exist, what does that character look like? So to keep the long story short, I kind of moved my research in this direction. I read a whole bunch of psychology and ended up writing two books for an academic audience, one called Character and Moral Psychology and the other called Moral Character and Empirical Theory. And then to, to wrap up the story, I thought, well, this is really interesting stuff. And we're also, we have a big project to wake for us called the Character Project, where we're doing really interesting things there too. And it'd be a shame to keep all this at the academic level, just, you know, gathering dust on, on the uh, proverbial, you know, book sh uh, library shelves in, in the library. Uh, so I tried to, to take a lot of what I've been working on and write for a broader audience, a lay audience with no background in philosophy. And that's what uh, turned into the character gap, How Good Are We?, which came out in 2017. Terrific. And the whole empirical critique of the existence of character was kind of a response to this earlier resurgence in interest in virtue that happened with like Alistair McIntyre and Rosalind Hursthouse, people like that. So it seems to me that like there was this surge of interest in virtue and in this critique. And then it seemed like around 2010, people stopped 
being interested in the topic with you, you as an exception, of course, but in general, it seems like there hasn't been as much interest in the topic of virtue and character as there had been. Well, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, so you're right. The, the way to tell this story is, is along the lines you said for a long time, Kantian approaches to ethics and utilitarian approaches to ethics kind of dominated the scene. Some people got fed up with those around the 1970s, 1980s. There was a big kind of resurgence in interest in what the ancient Greek philosophers were doing uh, when it came to matters of character and virtue. And the virtue ethics had this kind of growth of inter interest led by people like Alistair McIntyre, Rosalind Hursthouse, Christine Swanton, and others. Around the turn of the century, there's this new empirical critique. Now, the empirical critique comes in two stages. The first stage is to wonder whether traditional virtues and vices are widely possessed or not. And people like Harmon and Doris say, based upon the empirical evidence, there's good reason to think most people do not have their traditional virtues and most people do not have the traditional vices. That's the first stage of the critique. The second stage of the critique is to say, oh, and by the way, that's a problem for virtue ethical approaches in ethics. That if there is a lack of virtue and vice that serves as a new objection or grounds for complaint against virtue ethical approaches. So this got a lot of people who liked virtue ethics pretty upset. They said, well, you know, is it really a problem or not? First of all, does the evidence give us good reason to think most people lack traditional virtues and vices? But secondly, even if they do, even if the evidence does point in that direction for lack of virtue, is that a problem for Aristotelian virtue ethics? Those topics were really hashed out a lot in the ensuing 10 years. You're right. Uh, virtue ethics ethicists made a lot of defensive moves trying to defend their position. Uh, some people would follow up on behalf of Harmon and Doris. And of course, Harmon and Doris had additional publications of their own. But after a while, that that whole thing did, I think, kind of lose some momentum. People said what they wanted to say. It wasn't clear what new moves were going to be made. However, here's why I might disagree a little bit. There were lots of spinoff issues that arose, some kind of new territory that had been underexplored. So give you a couple of examples. One was, what about with respect to other virtues and vices besides the moral ones? So some people were wondering, well, what about theoretical virtues or epistemic virtues? Are they subject to an empirical critique like the moral virtues were? And so that became more recently a, a kind of hot topic of discussion. Another more recent set of issues is, well, what about character improvement and development? If it's true that most of us lack virtue, well, what can philosophers say to help us kind of practically take steps to grow in virtue? Maybe, maybe we'll get into that topic later in our conversation. In my case, I was never so interested in the debate about whether virtue ethics was going to be in trouble or not. I wanted to see for myself what the correct story is coming from psychology. What, what is the best interpretation? Is it lack of virtue? Is it lack of vice? Is it widespread virtue? Is it widespread vice? Or is it something else uh, altogether? And so I wanted to see how we actually are. And then I wanted to take from that some lessons, one of which is, well, what can we empirically do to try and grow in virtue? What can we do to try and become better people? So I think the uh, those are some topics that are still active and hot today. So 
I would guess from what I've read of this book, I haven't read all of it. I've read about half of it. And from what you said and from what I've heard you say on other podcasts, it sounds like you partly agree with the situationist critique in that you think indeed character is rare, but it exists as in, as in virtues and vices exist in a stable, something like a traditional manner, but they're rare, but this doesn't completely doom virtue ethics as a project. Is that approximately right? Yeah, that, that's very good. Um, so let, let me step back one for one minute and then answer the question directly. So the focus has been on traditional virtues and vices. I think it might be helpful to say something about what those are. I'm thinking of these virtues, for example, as character traits, which have a motivational side and a behavioral side. The behavioral side gives rise to cross-situationally consistent behavior. So the compassionate person isn't just compassionate in the shopping mall, but is compassionate in lots of different situations. The honest person isn't just honest on the, the stand in the courtroom, but is also honest in the office and uh, at home and in the workplace, I mean, at, at the bar and so forth. And it's stable over time. So motivational, behavioral, behavioral has a cross-situational component and a stable component to it. That's, um, broadly speaking, the kind of picture we're working with here when we're thinking about whether character exists, in quotation marks. I think, and of course, character can come in two varieties here, the virtuous kind, the good character traits, and the vicious kind, the bad character traits, examples of honesty and compassion on one side, dishonesty and, say, cruelty on the other side. My own view, based on having read hundreds of these studies and kind of trying to not put much weight on any one study, but looking at what the collective picture of the studies is, is that there's good reason to think virtue is attainable and vice is attainable, but that most people don't have the moral virtues and most people don't have the moral vices. Instead, most of us are in a murky middle ground, a murky middle space between virtue and vice. So I think of it as kind of like a bell curve, uh, with outliers, on the one hand, you might have your Mother Teresa's or your um, Gandhi's or your, your, Link, your Abraham Lincoln's. On the other hand, you have your Hitler's and your Stalin's. But most of us are neither of those kinds. We're better described as having what I call a mixed character. This is real character. These are character traits. But their character traits are not good enough to count as virtues nor bad enough to count as vices. And so that, hence the name mixed. This is my own view. It's uh, it's certainly idiosyncratic to me. No one else, as far as I know, holds it, or at least has published much about it. It's in the in the broad space of views that's also occupied by Aristotle, interestingly enough, because Aristotle also thought that most people were in a middle space between virtue and vice. But when we actually get into the details, he'll unpack that middle space differently than me. So at least I can say I'm broadly in the territory of Aristotle, um, but I'm the only one who really holds this this middle mixed character trait position. Well, if you think of virtues as Aristotle did, as excellences, then by definition, they would have to be rare. Um, would they? So um, uh, I would, ex I, 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 the definition part is holding me back. I, I would say I would expect them to be rare. I expect excellent things to be rare for just from my kind of a posteriori you know, experience of the world. But it doesn't 
seem automatic to me that they have to be by definition. I mean, so so couldn't there be a world where there are lots of excellent paintings and no bad paintings? Um, that all the artists in that world were just excellent artists. And so couldn't there also be a world in which there's all the people in the world had excellent character and no one had vicious character? That doesn't seem to be logically or conceptually impossible. But what I was thinking was, for an Aristotelian, the standard is going to be species relative, right? If we had a world where every child could run a marathon in an hour and 30 minutes, a two-hour marathon wouldn't be this amazing feat anymore. And we'd be evaluating based on a different standard. The standards that we evaluate humans by would, on this view, be relativized to some degree to human abilities. Okay, okay. I see better now what you're saying. And that, that, sounds, that sounds right. That sounds, that sounds more plausible. Uh, I was maybe not thinking purely Aristotelian here. I was kind of switching into a, a kind of moral realist, kind of objectivist perspective here, where I think they're, they're objective excellences, they're objective, the opposites, bads. And I was thinking that it's possible for a world to have lots of objective excellences in that world. But if I'm no Aristotelian scholar, I never claim to be. Okay, sure. And, uh, there, and there was something on the other side of that coin, which is that there's a sense in which if virtues seem too rare, it just seems like you're not evaluating humans by the right standard. So imagine somebody saying, almost no human is strong. What's the evidence of that? Well, almost no one can bench 400 pounds. Or almost no one is smart. Why? Because almost no one has the same IQ as Stephen Hawking or a higher IQ. Well, the response to that would be, you're just not evaluating humans by reasonable standards of either strength or intelligence. So I kind of want to say, if virtue is too rare, right, if like only one in 10 million people counts as a compassionate person or as a good person, maybe we're just not evaluating humans by the correct standard. Now, I'm not saying that you would say that it's virtue is that rare, but I'm just saying maybe there is some kind of limit for how rare a human virtue could be. I like that. I like that a lot. Yes. And I, I would completely agree with you. So let me add this wrinkle to the discussion. The Stoics, or at least some Stoics, and again, I don't claim to be a historian, held that virtue is either it's all or nothing. It's either perfect virtue or there's no virtue at all. That point goes right to what you're talking about, because if that's the framework we have where you either have a perfectly good character or no virtue at all in your character, then it's just not going to be applicable to any human being. And it's a standard that's not not only not attainable, it's not even helpful to to be using. I instead prefer a framework where virtue comes in degrees. So you can have, have, if you want to talk about perfect virtue, that's fine. We can also talk about strong virtue, moderate virtue, weak virtue, and then a threshold, which may be vague itself. And then after that threshold, we get into other categories, whatever other categories we like to use. Aristotle would talk about strength of will, you'd call it continence. He'd also talk about weakness of will, incontinence, and so forth. I like to talk about mixed traits, but regardless, um, for this point, for this discussion, I think that softens this worry a bit because, yeah, Perfect virtue is basically non-existent. Weak virtue, I think, is still rare, but not 
on the level of one in 10 million. Now you ask me, well, well, how rare? And, you know, at this point, I have to plead ignorance and throw up my hands to some extent. I mean, I think we can point to paragons of virtue historically, and maybe also people in our lives who we think maybe they weren't perfectly virtuous, maybe they'd have all the virtues, but they used to have a couple of virtues. But as far as what the empirical evidence will tell us, we can't really get at some hard numbers here simply because the studies were almost never longitudinal. So by that, I mean the studies almost never took the same group of people and followed them from one situation to the next to see if they had a consistent pattern of virtue or not, or virtuous behavior, I'm sorry, virtuous behavior or not. And that's the kind of rigorous empirical study and investigation I think you would need to try and determine how many people are there who are virtuous in the world, or at least in a subset of, of the population. Sure. So you're advocating a sort of scalar approach to virtue, and that's plausible. There are certain attractive features of that, because it seems strange to sort of draw a line on in the sand, and everybody on this side of the line, you're a bad person, and everyone on this side of the line, you're a good person, even though there might not be that much difference between them. So that's a feature of your view I find attractive. On the other hand, it makes me think of another scalar view I'm aware of, which is scalar consequentialism. One of my professors at CU Boulder, Alistair Norcross, has developed this view and pushed this line. And one worry about it is, well, you can, you can ask, how good can I be? Or how good should I worry about being, right? If there's nothing really important about maximizing utility, then it seems like I can say, well, you know, I've done enough good. I'm going home. And it doesn't seem like there's any point at the scale of promotion of utility where it's wrong to say that. And likewise, it seems like there could be something similar said for your view, like, okay, well, I'm not excellent. I don't have the virtues, but, you know, I'm pretty good and it's scalar, right? There's not, it's not an all or nothing thing. So what's so special about having the virtues? Yeah, yeah. So I guess that could be put in in from two different perspectives. One from the perspective of someone who's not doesn't qualify if it's virtuous at all, doesn't even meet the minimal threshold for virtue. You know, why should I bother changing my life and developing my character so that I can kind of join the club, the virtue club? And then there's also that question framed from someone who whose character does qualify as virtuous, say weakly virtuous, who says, well, why should I bother to continue to develop, go down the path of virtue and become even more virtuous than I already am? Isn't weak virtue or moderate virtue good enough? Let me take the first case and we can we can go in whatever direction you want, but it, the person who's not virtuous and knows that they're not virtuous uh, at all, uh, why should they bother? Well, I give a couple of reasons. I don't know if they're going to be completely persuasive or satisfying. And I should say they're not aimed at someone who's a complete moral skeptic or is just outside of the realm of morality at all and trying to get them on board, not only to be to care about morality, but to care about virtue. I'm trying to speak to people who think morality is important, think you know ethics matters, but maybe haven't paid as much attention to virtue specifically. And how can I try and motivate them and inspire them to get to pay more attention to it? So one reason is one that philosophers usually wouldn't be happy with, and my kind of virtue friends wouldn't be happy with, which is that it seems to have 
self-interested benefits, that there is good empirical evidence, at least correlational, and I wish it was more than correlational, but at least correlational evidence linking increased virtue to things we care about, like longer lifespans, reduced stress, greater academic performance, greater subjective well-being, satisfaction with life, and so forth. So that's uh, a reason, and that will appeal to, I think, many people just to get them to pay attention and to get on board and start caring about this. If it was the only reason, though, there might be problems. This might be indeed paradoxical or seemingly paradoxical to try and develop virtue on the grounds that it's beneficial for yourself. Uh, if you think that being virtuous involves sacrifices of your self-interest at times, uh, then that may be a not the best strategy out there. So I think there are a couple other reasons I'll mention more briefly. One is that it seems like more virtue increases, the better society is. So it seems like the more virtue abounds in a society, the more the society as a whole flourishes and is well off, say with respect to justice, as a virtue of the individual members of the society. It seems like it's also intrinsically good. Now, I, this is just me just announcing this without any arguments, but it seems to be the virtue is intrinsically good, so it's a good thing to possess, and the more you possess it, the better. There's also, in religious contexts, for those people who are religious, lots of reasons to care about virtue, which um, that's a whole topic of discussion. And then finally, there's an emotional pull uh, that's the least philosophical reason, maybe, but the one that I think grabs the attention of many people, which is when we're confronted with the lives of virtuous people, we often have an emotional reaction to those lives, or at least some of those lives, a reaction of admiration combined, combined with inspiration. And so whereas sometimes philosophical arguments might leave us cold, when we actually watch a, a documentary of this person or read the biography of Lincoln or a Paul Farmer, who's someone I talk about in the book, working with patients in Haiti, that can grab us in a different way and motivate us to want our lives to better reflect that person's life. So a variety of different reasons, some of which may be more appealing to different people than others, but collectively, I think, make a, a case. Great. Well, the only thing I would really add to that, I think, is I don't see anything wrong with pursuing virtue out of purely self-interested motives at least in the early stages, right? Not that I would expect you to disagree, but the thought would be that in, if you're really making a sincere effort to pursue virtue, at some point you would transcend self-interest or at least self-interest in the narrowest construal. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So I think it's a good hook or I don't know, if, uh, something along those lines to start us down a path. But then I would hope that eventually people would come to, myself included, appreciate something like the importance of helping others for its own sake. And that's just because I get some kind of self-interested rewards from doing so. So that one's perspective can gradually change and one can develop a greater moral perception or appreciation for values that one might not have uh, realized were there in the first place. Right. But I think it's interesting to note that this is something you can say to the moral skeptic, to the person who says, I don't care about other people. Why should I be moral? You could say, well, you care about yourself, 
and things would probably go better for you if you tried to develop the virtues. And then once they get on the path of developing the virtues, then they would have these extra motivations that we think they should have anyway. That, that's good. That's good. I, I like that. It's not, you know, a, a kind of knockdown philosophical arguments to give to the moral skeptic to, you know, with, with the kind of nice premises and say, oh, here's premise one, here's premise two, here's premise three, bam, conclusion, uh, hard to resist any of these premises. Therefore, if you want to be rational, you better accept the conclusion. But it's more like a, a strategy or a way of life, which can over time, perhaps lead a moral skeptic to have a different perspective on life. I like that. Right. Well, so I wanted to get into the character gap. I wanted to bring up this persnickety little thing, and it is a bit of a tangent, if you'll just indulge me for a minute, but I have to say... Oh, no, it's a good character, so watch out. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't okay. claim to be a virtuous person myself, so... Yeah, but you're not a vicious person. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> uh, it's statistically unlikely, Okay. According, okay to, according to your very convincing theory. Okay, there you go. Go ahead. Yeah, so... The cover of the character gap shows sort of like you've got a picture of Hitler at the bottom and a picture of Gandhi at the top. It's sort of like showing the spectrum, the spectrum of character. And I don't have any problem at all with Hitler being on the absolute bottom. There are probably other people who are as bad or worse than him, but he's the most recognizable, very, very evil person. But Gandhi, I have a problem with as an exemplar of virtue. I have always thought he was a very overrated person, uh, especially after reading Orwell's essay on Gandhi and reading about actually some of the nice things he said about Hitler and saying that the re Jews' response to the Holocaust should be to commit collective suicide. In my mind, that kind of disqualifies him from yeah, being yeah. a virtuous person. Yeah, this this was, I mean, I, uh, I played some degree of ignorance, but it was, you know, it's not... I'm responsible for the ignorance. I didn't do my homework at the time. That so I, OUP Oxford University Press designed this cover. I thought it looked great. You know, I didn't do my homework at the time, looking into his life a lot. And then subsequently, you're not the first person to to say this. So subsequently, several people have questioned this. And so if I had to do it over again, I would I would swap out another person. I will say this: exemplarity comes in degrees, and also is virtue specific. So there are better exemplars than Gandhi for sure. And he may still have been a good exemplar with respect to one or two virtues, which is compatible with him being not a good exemplar at all with respect to other moral domains of his life. So, you know, that, that, to switch examples for a moment, you know, Lincoln, of course, is a paradigm exemplar for honesty, but you know, I, I wouldn't consider him to be an exemplar of all the virtues. Martin Luther King notoriously had, when it came to sexual ethics, uh, you know, was not, not exemplar with respect to having lots of affairs and, and so forth. So, but of course, exemplar in other respects. So, um, so I think it's really important when, it, when it, exemplars come up a lot in the book and I needed to reinforce more than I did. And of course the cover already was a mistake, but um, that's, we shouldn't look to exemplars of virtue as such, period, but look for exemplars of a particular virtue, in particular, especially one in a virtue where we ourselves are lacking. So if I know that I'm you know, deficient when it comes to honesty, then I can learn more about Lincoln. But if I'm deficient when it comes to compassion, I may want to look to someone else. I like that approach. 
like take what you can from everyone. I'm a kind of a critic of Gandhi, but I can probably learn some things from his better moments. Right, right. And patience, peace, justice, those kind of things. Um, I th- I'm sure we can all learn a lot. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. One person I'll suggest as an, an absolute exemplar of virtue, uh, Florence Nightingale. Okay. Flor- Florence Nightingale, the uh, I believe she was the founder of the Red Cross and then and uh, completely transformed and modernized nursing as a profession and made it respectable. There is no dirt on that woman. I mean, okay. I, just <laughs> just like an angelic person, very intelligent, very loving. Uh, amazing human being, and I have not found a single ill word ever okay, spoken of. Okay. I I don't know much, and now I will have to do more digging. So, in a good way, I, I would love to learn more. I like to get some better examples that I have used in the past. So, thank you. So, the the character gap, the gap you speak of, is the gap between our self assessment and how good we really are. And I've got to say, it reminds me of another book that I read recently which you might be familiar with. It's called The Knowledge Illusion. And I don't remember the name of the two authors, but it's an investigation into what people think they know and what they actually know. And it turns out, unsurprisingly, this would be very familiar to you. People think that they know a lot more than they actually know. And in in particular, if you know that other people know something or that you could easily Google it and find out for yourself, you have the illusion that you you know this very well. Or if you're familiar with something, you think you understand it. So like a toilet is a very familiar item. Uh, so is a zipper. And most people think they understand how these items work, but then asked to get out a pencil and paper and explain it, they don't know at all. Myself included. I, I could not explain how a toilet works. <laughs> well, but you probably, if you know that, right, you've got the Socratic advantage here. Right, 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 right. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the book. That sounds like a nice parallel to what I'm talking about here. So it consistently, when you give survey instruments to people to rate their character, it could be very crude survey instruments like rate your honesty from one to five, or just how good of a person do you think you are, um, with say five being very good and one being very bad. Consistently, people rate themselves as above average. Uh, above the middle, so like a four out of five. Uh, and this is also cross-cultural. It's virtue-specific and global self-evaluations. But my thought is that, well, is that right? Is that accurate? And I could you know, make some pronouncements from the armchair and look at human history and look at human world events and start you know, raising some, some questions could have come up in my mind about, you know, look at, look at, look at the world today. Uh, are most people really four out of five? But as I've already you know, talked about some, I went to the psychology literature with an eye to seeing what people actually do when it comes to situations that put their character to the test. All right. Now, I want to go in and discuss some of these studies. But I want to say basically kind of where I stand on this, which is I, I think the a priori thought experiments might actually be better evidence than the studies that, that you produce here. I've got some qu- problems with them, but let's consider the evidence of the armchair evidence. I think it's considerable. Here's some armchair evidence for you. M- most people think they're above average morally. Well, that can't be true. Most people can't be above average. Yeah, yeah. And another another thing is, just this is puzzling. You 
ask your students, you know, okay, imagine that you were a German citizen in the 1930s and 1940s. How many of you would be hiding Jews in your attic? And, you know, I haven't actually performed this experiment, so I'm armchairing even this bit. <laughs> but my suspicion is it's going to be more than 1%. Right, right. Or, right. or if you ask somebody, imagine that you inherited a large slave plantation in 1848, what are the chances that you emancipate all of those slaves and become an abolitionist and risk your life and your livelihood? Um, probably there are a lot of people who think they would do that who in fact wouldn't, yeah. right? And the evidence is, just look at the fact that lots and lots of people were found themselves in these circumstances and failed, and you should be at least having doubts about whether you would be the super exception here. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, th th those are good. Uh, I, I, I'm sympathetic to those points. It tends to be, I don't know about the slave example, but it tends to be that people have a inflated sense of what their own abilities would be historically, or what their, what their actions would be historically. So, you know, would you have voluntarily joined the Nazis if you were living in World War II? Uh, of course not. No, I would never. Never do that. Um, would you willingly obey a, a Nazi authority and kill a Jewish person? No, no, of course not. Um, so, but then along comes something like the Milgram studies from the 1960s. And lo and behold, in the presence of, I don't, we can, I mean, I, I'm, I'm holding off on getting into the study unless you, unless it's okay to get. Let's do it. Let's do it. I actually have, I, I actually wanted to get into this one. I thought we might do some of the other ones first, but let's just jump into the Milgram because yeah. it's one of the more controversial ones. Yeah. And it's, it's, you've already brought up Nazis and so forth. It's a kind of perfect segue. Um, so in the famous Milgram studies, for those who listeners who are not familiar with them from the 1960s, Stanley Milgram at Yale had a variety of different studies. There's one that's most famous, but it was only one of many. In the most famous version, a participant would come into the lab, uh, would be told to administer a test to someone in the next room. For every wrong answer that person got on the test in the next room, the participant would have to, or, ha or at least was told to, turn up a dial that would administer increasingly greater shocks. So initially, if you wrong answers, the dial goes up, the small shocks. But as time goes on, more wrong answers, greater and greater and greater shock to the person in the next room. Now, be real transparent about this for listeners. This was all rigged. There were no real shocks being given. The person in the next room was an actor. But the participants didn't know that. At least there's good reason, you know, there's good evidence to think that the participant thought this was all real. As, of course, now the test was rigged, so there'll be a lot of wrong answers, and the, there was pressure to keep turning up the dial more and more, giving more shocks. Another key feature of the setup is that there's an authority figure standing behind the participants in a scientific you know, garb looking very official. And if the participants started having doubts or you know, second-guessing things, would say things like, please continue. You must continue. As time went on, more wrong answers, participants would start getting more nervous, but uh, lo and behold, most of them would continue to turn up the dial more and more and more until things like this happened. The, the test taker in the next room would start screaming or would pound on the walls or would say, I have a heart condition or would say, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Get me out of here. 
eventually it got to the point where if you turn the dial up to the XXX level, which is marked XXX, the highest voltage level, there would be silence in the next room, implying the death or at least the unconsciousness of the test taker. And what happened? The majority of participants went all the way up to the XXX level. So um, this, what, what can we make of this? Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick things and then you can, you can give me your critique. One is that this was surprising. So other people were polled who were not part of the study and were asked, what would you expect would happen? And overwhelmingly said, we, we would expect people to turn the dial up somewhat, but not that high. So again, having a more optimistic picture of what people's character would be like than was warranted by the facts. Second thing is that uh, this is, doesn't seem to be in line with what a compassionate person would do. So it's one piece of evidence that Harmon started with our conversation and Doris, and also I use for lack of compassion. Not, not prove anything. I would never say this actually proves or you know, is demonstrative of anything by itself. It's just one piece of evidence. Um, and then thirdly, well, you, say, you could say, well, maybe it's evidence for some other kind of character feature like obedience. Maybe, uh, well, what this tells us is that we're not very good in compassion, but we're actually good on another character trait like obedience. That, that could be, but not helpful if we're talking about virtue because a virtuous person is one who's going to have virtuous obedience as well as virtuous compassion. It's going to have practical wisdom. It's going to be able to discern what matters most in a given situation and would realize that the suffering of the person in the other room outweighs the importance of obeying the authority figure. So even if you posit obedience here as a character trait that doesn't get you to a virtuous person. You said you had some critiques. Yes. So I think my critiques are actually more like critiques of the conclusions people draw from the study than maybe the study itself. So one point I would want to raise is I don't like how the scientists are described as just generically authority figures, because not all authorities are the same. Not all authority figures are the same. We want people to trust scientists, I think, at least I've been hearing a whole lot of complaining about how people don't trust scientists. Why don't tr people trust scientists when it comes to global warming? Why aren't they willing to change their lives and devote trillions and trillions of dollars for a problem that isn't immediately affecting them when they have all these other problems to worry about? Why don't people just trust the scientists? Or why don't people just trust the scientists about COVID when the anti-pandemic measures are impacting their businesses? Okay, so I hear complaints like this all the time. How dare you not trust scientists? And here are some scientists invite people into a lab and tell them to behave in certain ways. And wow, look, you Nazis, you actually listen to the scientists. How could you? Something isn't consistent here. And I think it's pretty fair to say in defense of the people who behaved this way that they took the scientists who frankly had deceived them to be a legitimate authority. And they thought science was an important end. And it wasn't so obvious to me that the suffering that they believed was going on in the other room 
easily outweighed the benefit that this study was was going to produce. So that's one point of criticism I would I would raise. Yeah, yeah. Let me say something to that. Uh, so there are different lessons you could draw, and there there are different um, d- different degrees of harshness w- one could take in it in assessing or evaluating the participants. I tend to be more along in your camp here, where I don't want to be too hard on them. Uh, one reason for that is that in other versions of Milgram's study, they actually behave quite admirably. Now, these are not the same participants, so again, it's not longitudinal. But if you took the authority figure away, then the shocking was at a low level. If you had two authority figures, and then Milgram ran all these studies too, if you t- but they still get a lot of the attention that the main, the famous one does. If you had two authority figures, and they gave contradictory instructions. The shocking was at a very low level. If the authority figure was not in the same room, but was in another room, it was just talking through the phone. It was also at, the shocking was also at a lower level. So if people were really, you know, cruel or enjoyed inflicting pain on others, those variations shouldn't matter. Uh, it shouldn't matter whether the authority figure is there or not. They have license. They have the freedom to inflict as much pain as they want. They they would go for it. But it did matter a lot. So when given the opportunity to inflict pain and no authority figure, people behaved quite admirably. So this is, again, part of my story about mixed character. Some philosophers read this empirical literature and they say, evidence of vice. What we have here is not only lack of virtue, what we have is evidence of widespread vice. And I just, I just don't go that far. I'm wanting to give more credit to people than that, more moral credit. I want to give more credit to people than you, I think. I think I'm on the other side of the people who say this is evidence of widespread vice. Because I think there's a case for saying that obedience to legitimate authority is itself a virtue. It's not a very popular modern virtue, but certainly if you think that there are such things as just wars, you need people to have some degree of deference, so not absolutely unlimited, but a considerable degree of deference to military orders. If you're religious, then you'll respect the notion of obeying God's commands. I don't think we should go immediately to the Nuremberg defense if I was just obeying orders, because clearly that doesn't override absolutely everything, but I think it counts for something. Right. And, and so I think if these people were inflicting pain, believing that with justification, because they have the testimony of a scientist saying that you must continue with justification. They're believing that they are inflicting pain for the good of science. I mean, this is something that we should be familiar with. There are all sorts of animals tests, although I think a lot of these are unethical. Maybe they all are unethical. There are all sorts of medical procedures that inflict pain. And I don't want to say that the doctors who do those procedures are not compassionate people, they might be doing the most compassionate possible thing. And so these guys are inflicting pain, but they think that they are doing it for the good of science and have justification for this. I don't see why they're not compassionate people necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So, or what, you don't see why there, there's reason for concluding that they're not compassionate. Uh, Correct. There's no positive evidence here that they are compassionate. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That I, I can 
probably be moved closer in this direction. I worry about the upper bound, though. Uh, I mean, I could see going, I mean, first of all, it's really hard to speak of this because I wasn't in this situation and I don't have a real visual sense for what was going on and what it was like to be there. But, you know, me sitting here decades later from my armchair making these ethical pronouncements is, is hard. But, you know, I could see going along for a while, okay, the shocks are getting worse and worse, but the scientist tells me I need to continue. But there does seem to be a point where, okay, this is this has gone too far. And that, sh- that, that should be clear that it's gone too far. I mean, when, when you have someone literally pounding on the walls or screaming that they have a heart condition that and their chest is hurting, uh, or they, you know, they withdraw consent and demand to be released from the study. That's scary stuff. I mean, that's 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 pretty scary stuff. So, uh, I, I don't know if I can go completely as far as you, but maybe I shouldn't be as quite as negative as I have been. Well, so there was one passage of of dialogue in your book about this that that really got me thinking. Where the person was like, think, you know, the the person pretending to be shocked was giving all sorts of signs that like, I want this to be over. And the, the authority figure, the scientist said, basically something to the effect like, I take responsibility for what happens to him. And the conventional interpretation of this is people are okay with killing people or harming them if they're not the ones who are, who are on the, the hook for it. But I take a more generous and I think a much more plausible interpretation, which is that is evidence that this person is okay, which in fact was the truth. That is like you have this this person. This person clearly doesn't want to go to jail for murder. He clearly doesn't want to be banned from ever participating in a study or, or ever again. Right? right. And here's this expert who's not worried about it. You've got good reason to think everything's going to be okay. And indeed it was. So yeah. the artificiality of this of this whole scenario just undermines these uh, very pessimistic conclusions or even moderately pessimistic conclusions in my view. So your, your, what implication of your interpretation be that at least maybe not consciously, but subconsciously people, the participants at some point stop believing that this was real, that this per, that stop believing that this person was really getting shocked to this extent. Or they thought he was being shocked by this extent, but the scientist who was there had very good reason to believe he wasn't going to be permanently harmed and he was going to be well compensated and everything was going to be fine in the end. One of the two. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I can, I can see that. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, it's hard. It's hard to, again, it, it's hard for us to, to make these pronouncements um, and wonder what was going on in the psychology of the participants at the time. It's a bit, it's just, it's hard. Also, for me at the moment, thinking through this interpretation, which I, I appreciate, I haven't really thought about much before, to get my mind around someone saying they have a heart condition and at the same time thinking that the scientist in charge is going to take care of it and make sure everything is okay in the long run. How administering shocks which are marked i mean not just the xxx but the voltage levels marked the whole way on the dial how administering severe shocks to a person who complains of a heart condition 
is compatible with the scientists, with believing that the scientist is going to make everything okay. I see your point. I would say, though, maybe this is an epistemic problem. They're weighing different kinds of evidence, right? So it's a case of the knowledge illusion rather than the moral illusion, maybe. Okay. 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 I've never thought about that interpretation, so I think I have to consider it more. Yeah, I appreciate that. There was another, you you brought up a variation of this study that I hadn't heard of before um, about a simulation of this. Uh, say a little bit more about that one. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot to say about it, um, simply because it's it's very new and the results haven't been published. Uh, so, or at least not not extensively yet. So it's it's a lot of build up to it and it's kind of a disappointing takeaway because it, we, don't, we don't know yet. But here, this is interesting context at least. So the Milgram studies were done in the 60s. They were replicated across the world. They uh, later on, though, were ethically prohibited by REBs because, you know, for, for some pretty obvious reasons. And so we haven't been able to do them recently, at least the way Milgram ran them. In the meantime, though, some psychologists have been trying to do near enough studies to get as close as they can within the ethical parameters that they're allowed to work in. So, for example, the in some studies, they'll see how many participants go up to a certain threshold of shock, which was found to be the kind of point of no return. And so if they can run their study that way and see well, what percentage went up to, I don't know what it was, like 220 volts. Uh, well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good indicator of how many would have actually gone all the way to the XXX. Well, another interesting, clever variation was to say, well, what if we don't have a real, in quotation marks, a real test taker? But instead, we have a virtual reality simulation of a test taker in a you know avatar who's taking the test, and we we bring participants into a virtual reality cave or simulation, and do it that way. Well, that's what this team did at the University of Barcelona, and they were interested not just in replicating or or seeing you know how many uh, participants went over up to XXX, but also what factors predicted individual differences in shock levels. So they were looking at things like um, socioeconomic factors, uh, personality factors, genetic factors, and we're trying to determine what could be predictors of behavior in the Milgram setup within the ethical parameters allowed by the RAB. And now you're wondering what those predictors are. And that's why I already said it's going to be disappointing because I don't have lots to, to report at this point, but they did find things like conscientiousness was a predictor uh, of whether you shocked or not. It's a clever, a clever, but you might also raise a lot of questions about, well, what is the virtual reality side of it to really tell you about the real world, so to speak? One thing that raised a red flag for me about this is you said that in the virtual reality rendition of this, people went up to like 70%. 72% of the people went all the way, whereas in the Milgram study, it was like 65%. So, but here's, this is where something seems off, right? Like, you mean to tell me it's having an, a simulation or what people think of as a real person only makes a 10% difference? So, so you would think if it's a simulation, people might be inclined to shock more? Yeah. Yeah. If they know it's a simulation. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting question. I, I can't really think of much to say about that other than I saw a video of this 
on my end. And even though I knew it was a virtual reality simulation, it was tangibly uncomfortable for me to watch the video. I was not there in Barcelona. I was watching the video from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, of what I knew was a virtual reality avatar. And it was well done enough that I, I was actually very squeamish in my chair. So to that extent, um, you know, maybe not so surprising that it would be unpleasant or uncomfortable for people, even though they knew it was virtual reality. But that's all I can think of at the moment. Yeah, that is interesting. And there are definitely some things here. Like, for example, even if you take like the charitable interpretation, I tried to push for the original Milgram experiment. Why would it matter whether the, the authority figure is right there in the room with you or telling you through a phone, right? Mm -hmm. There's some some kind of irrationality is going on here. Because you're thinking that it's still an authority figure and they're, if you respect authority figures, doesn't matter where they are. Yeah, evidence is evidence. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so, what, so what's the explanation for why being out of the room makes a difference? Is it that there's less d diffusion of responsibility here? Uh, it's easier to put the responsibility onto the authority figure who's standing right behind you. Whereas if the person's in the other room, it seems like, okay, I'm on my own. I'm by myself. I have more responsibility here. So therefore, it's harder for me to turn the dial up. Well, I would think that you don't want to let down somebody when they're right there. And so you don't want to let down. I would, th I, For my interpretation, I would think, and this is just speculation and, you know, turn this over to the experts. But I would think you don't want to let down the scientist who's standing right there, who's experimented as you're, you're running. But if they're there in the other room, eh, yeah, maybe maybe the study doesn't have to go on so much. That's what I would guess. Yeah, that's, that's what I would guess, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. But, of course, the Milgram is just the most extreme one. And there are a variety of, of other studies that similarly cast doubt on the extent to which people are good. Why don't you talk about some of those? And also, I'll note uh, some studies that show quite admirable behavior. So it's easy when we get into these discussions just to focus on the negative studies. Uh -huh. And you get kind of depressed after a while, and you say, oh, boy, we're, we're kind of wretched people. But I want to emphasize again and again, my, my account is a picture of mixed character, and there are, there's a plethora of studies which found that people behaved quite admirably in, in, surprisingly, in surprising ways. Um, but now, a different... Example, how about cheating? I'm, I'm working on honesty right now, so that one's a lot kind of more central to my mind. Here's a kind of study design that's been used in the last 20 years extensively in the cheating literature. And the design is as follows. A participant comes into the lab. They're told, take a test. As 20 problems, you'll be paid 50 cents per correct answer. And off you go. Participant works on the on the test, finishes, turns it in, doesn't grade it, and gets paid accordingly. So that's this is the control condition. They have no opportunity to cheat. Now, in what we'll call the shredder condition, different participants comes into the lab, same test, same monetary incentive, except this time they get to grade their own worksheets, dispose of all their materials and report, in quotation marks, how they did. Knowing, and it's crucial, that knowing that uh, there's no way that if they gave a distorted answer, that would be 
picked up on by the person in charge. In other words, they could cheat and get away with it if they so choose. Of course, they don't have to. It's, a, it's entirely their choice. Well, lo and behold, when you compare the average for that group across participants, average performance on the test versus the average performance for the baseline control condition, there's a big difference. In one particular study, 7 out of 20 in the control condition, 14 out of 20 correct in quotation marks in the shredder condition. Now, it's, of course, possible if you want to think about lots of different explanations, it's possible that the second group was so much smarter or just, you know, it lucked out that way. They're really good on the test and they just perform better. But we, none of us buy that one. That, that would, you have a lot harder time convincing me of that interpretation. We, I think we all know that there was some cheating going on. Now, a couple of interesting observations about this, and then I'll give you the mixed bag side of it, why it's not just evidence of dishonesty. A couple of observations first. One is that in these studies, almost no one cheats to the maximum extent. After all, if you know that you can get away with it, you might think that the rational thing to do, at least from a kind of purely self-interested perspective, is to go all the way. If you know you can get away with it and you're willing to cheat in the first place, why only go halfway? Why not go all the way and say you got 20, 20 right? You know, for, for some reason, uh, people are more likely to steal a dollar that's just laying there than a, an enormous stack of cash. Because the one seems trivial, and the other seems like, wow, I'm really doing something significant here. Yep, yep, yep. And that, that is going to uh, play in nicely to uh, an explanation of what's going on in these, in these results. So I think that, that's nice, very helpful. Um, so that's that's one thing, and the, uh, the the here's the other thing. There is a third variation of this setup. Remember, the first one is control condition. The second one is the shredder condition. The third one is where you have this different participants again, same test, same monetary setup, same shredder setup where they get to grade it to themselves, destroy their materials, and and report whatever they want, except that now the participants. Before they took the test, sign their university's honor code. So these are college students. They signed their university's honor code, pledging their honor that they wouldn't lie, cheat, or steal. Then they took the test. What do you think happened? Well, I've already kind of set you up for some good news because it's mixed character after all. Cheating disappeared at the group average level. It was back down to the control level. This is striking to me. If I would have expected if people were through and through dishonest, that they would have, of course, signed the honor code. They don't want to get called out or, or flagged as potentially dishonest. But they would have done that as a kind of matter of purely as a kind of performance matter, and then cheated just like they would have normally. But they didn't. And so what's going on here, now to get to the underlying psychological explanation, first of all, I, I think uh, not what I would expect of an honest person, but also not what I would expect of a dishonest person. I think it's evidence of mixed character. But the, the psychology is fascinating here. It looks like, on the one hand, we do think it's wrong to cheat, at least in most cases. We do, we do believe that. But we also want to cheat if we think we can get away with it and benefit in the process. And yet, here's the third wrinkle or a third uh, element to the story. We want to think of ourselves as honest people. So when we're 
have an opportunity to cheat, no questions asked, we'll often do it. That's what the second setup shows. But when we sign the honor code, that serves as a moral reminder to remind us of what's right and wrong, in this case, that cheating is wrong. It's then very hard to turn around and blatantly cheat and still think of yourself as an honest person. Similar to what the example you gave. It's one thing just to take the dollar. That's not going to undermine your, you know, your self-understanding of yourself as an honest person. But to find a lost wallet and grab a whole bunch of you know, hundreds out of, the, out of the wallets and then throw the wallet away, it's hard to think of yourself as an honest person when you do something like that. And so uh, that's a, a kind of study I really like a lot and make a lot of use of. I talked to a friend the other day who said he had the experience of losing a wallet with a month's rent in it, and somebody returned the wallet to the police, and there was no cash in it. So, (laughs) (laughs) nice enough to give the guy the wallet back, but I'm taking the money. That's your loss, buddy. Yep, yep. So there's there's a very recent study where the the psychologists across the world had wallets delivered to police offices and similar similar authority figures with varying amounts of cash inside of the walls. And then also with the address of the wallet owner in the walls. And then they would see if the wallet was returned at all to the address. And if so, whether how much money was inside the walls. Oh, this is brilliant. This and, is brilliant. Yep. And I can get you the study and you can maybe put it on your website for the, the podcast or something. If, if listeners want to track down the study, I can, you know, you can link to it. But the, the, uh, the upshot was that as the money increased, there was less likelihood to keep the money. As the amount of money in the wallet increased, there was less of a likelihood. On average, of course, you know, there's always individual differences, uh, less of a likelihood. And there are also interesting differences from country to country. Uh, but as a general trend, this was you know taken to be evidence of of we're not so bad after all uh, in this kind of set, setup. So anyway, sorry to digress, but uh, but yeah, that's another uh, set of studies I like to use for illustrating mixed character. Yeah, that's that that seems right. Now it's interesting how people can be reliably good in in some circumstances and then reliably not so good in other circumstances. And you ask why focus on the negative. Maybe this is the reason to focus on the negative, because as you say, virtue is supposed to be a stable character trait. And if it turns out that people reliably act badly in certain situations, doesn't this imply that they just don't have virtue in any of these situations? Isn't it just like a win for the vice? Uh, well, it's a it, I, you know, I give a different gloss on that. Um, I think it's a win for lack of virtue. But that's different than saying it's a win for vice, because after all, vice is supposed to function the same way. Vice is supposed to be stable and cross-situationally consistent, too. Uh, the, the, a, a dishonest person is supposed to be cross-situationally dishonest, given some you know, qualifications. But I don't see that pattern of cross-situational consistency in dishonest behavior as illustrated, for example, in that very, very study. Well, in this one respect, it seems that I am more pessimistic and you are more optimistic. Oh, no. <laughs> because, because I'm inclined to think 
that if I'm arbitrarily honest, I'm dishonest. If I'm arbitrarily cruel, then I'm cruel, right? Like uh, the person who's consistently cruel is very cruel. Mm-hmm. But I, I, my inclination is to say that uh, if you're not virtuous, you're probably vicious. So, the, so two thoughts. One is that the arbitrarily. We have to unpack what arbitrarily means here. I don't think these studies give us evidence of people willy-nilly, kind of accidentally or out of nowhere, behaving dishonestly or honestly. I think there's a compelling psychological story which explains why in this one situation they behave honestly, in other situations they behave dishonestly. So we can give a a, a motivating explanation or a psychological explanation for their behavior. So it's not arbitrary in that sense. But the the other, other thought I had was, okay, if you're not virtuous, then you're vicious. That is, that's a possible way, way to go. Uh, it's interesting that historically, no one, as far as I know, has held that view. Other than maybe if you if you want to gloss the certain Stoics as saying, well, lack of perfect virtue means you're vicious to some extent, automatically. Aristotle, you know, had a, this conception where there were where there are intermediate possibilities other than virtue and vice like in like incontinent incontinent or continence yeah right. yeah so just to for the if that, that terminology is not familiar to listeners the continent person knows what the right thing to do is and does it but has to struggle has some a temptation that they have to overcome in order to get themselves to do the right thing Whereas the virtuous person is wholehearted. There's no internal conflict or struggle going on. The incontinent person, now the weak-willed, is someone who also knows what the right thing to do is, but doesn't do it. They have this opposing temptation, and they give in to the temptation. And so you find the same pattern of behavior in those people as you do in the vicious. But unlike the vicious who are wholeheartedly vicious, the incontinent are internally conflicted because they are given to this temptation, even though they know what the right thing to do is. So that is another approach. I personally don't like that approach myself either, since you don't like it, since you think it's either virtue or vice, you're not going to like that yourself. I don't think those categories are very descriptively accurate. I don't think, another way to put it is, I don't think most people uh, are weak-willed across the board. That, That seems strange to me that, you know, when it comes to everything from helping, harming, lying, cheating, stealing, that we know what the right thing to do is, but we always give in temptation to do the wrong. Nobody's that's globally true. incontinent. Nobody's, yeah. global, but maybe with a particular thing, though, like if you've got an addiction or a particular weakness or, yeah. or some something yeah. like that. If you want to go real narrow, yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if we're talking about across the board evaluations of people, no, that doesn't work. I don't even think it works with respect to one moral domain. So, so to go back to tie us back to the honesty again, you know, you have honest person, continent person, incontinent person, dishonest person. But I don't think most people are even weak of willed when it comes to matters of honesty. Again, as that study is illustrates, you had people in one situation who cheated with a with some abandon, not complete abandon, but not but some abandon, mm-hmm. 
and you'd be with another situation who didn't cheat at all. That's not what a consistently incontinent person would do. I um, see your point. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best way to go is vice, virtue and vice, uh, mixed character in the middle. Yeah, I, see, I can definitely see the appeal of that kind of approach. And it does get our intuitions right about a lot of things. I think we ought to wrap up here. This has been fascinating. Again, the guest is uh, Christian Miller, and his new book is The Character Gap. And I should have said it's a very readable book. And if you're interested in philosophy but don't necessarily have a degree in philosophy yourself, this would be a, a good one to pick up. Thank you for saying that, and I really appreciate you having me on your show. It's been great. All right. Well, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. All right. Take care.